Second Peter is so good. Uh, let's just come to the Lord Jesus and ask his spirit to be with us tonight. Father, we just thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit as the teacher, the one who teaches us all things, who opens our understanding. And Lord, when we were saved, you gave us ears to hear. You gave us eyes to see. You gave us hearts that can grasp spiritual truth. And so, Lord, we ask you to speak to us, feed us in pastures of tender grass. Take us, Lord, to those still waters. And thank you, Lord, for ministering your word to us tonight. In the mighty name of Jesus. Now, would you pray, church, and say, Lord, I open my heart to receiving your word. Change me tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. If I can finish on time, let me say if I can finish somewhere around 5 or 10 after 8, then I'm going to open up to questions. So if you have a question, if it's theological, biblical in nature, I'll try. I can't promise I'll know uh, the answer to all of them, but I'm going to go where few would fear to tread, and I'm going to go and take questions without knowing what's coming. And um, that's a risk. Amen? Because you may have a question that makes me look silly. So anyway, here we go. Now, we, we just finished First Peter, which was all about suffering. As a matter of fact, let me just compare the two letters from Simon Peter. Peter wrote his first letter because he was moved by the suffering of God's people. He wrote his second letter because he was moved by the seduction of God's people. He was moved the first time by what Satan, the old lion, was doing. He was moved the second time by what Satan, the old liar, was doing. When he wrote his first letter, the attack was from without. When he wrote the second letter, the attack was from within. And it was very much more serious. Because the church could not be destroyed by fierce torments, but it could be destroyed by false teaching. And it's still true today. Our greatest danger is not from without, it's from within. Peter's second epistle, this is really interesting to me, his second epistle follows the same pattern as all the other second epistles of the New Testament. For example, 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, 2 John. All of those seconds deal with error or apostasy. So it must be an issue with the church, a danger to the church, that error and apostasy finds its way in. In his first letter, Peter had a burden to comfort those believers who were going through the fire. But in his second letter, he had a burden to caution those believers who were playing with the fire. His second epistle is full of warning. It strongly resembles the epistle of Jude, which is why I'm going to Jude after we finish 2 Peter. I'm going to go right on to Jude. Much has been made of the similarity between the two because really they're almost like twins. Probably what had come to full fruit and flower when Jude wrote was only beginning to bloom and blossom when Peter wrote. Peter's second epistle is in three parts, and let's say them together. Are you ready? Faith's convictions, faith's contention. I'm hearing three of you. I know you can talk. Let's, let's try this again. Uh, his, his epistle is in three parts. Ready? Faith's convictions, chapter 1. Faith's contention, chapter 2. And faith's consummation in chapter 3. 
That sums up those chapters. Now, the key verse in 2 Peter is in the last chapter, almost the end of the letter, where he says, beware. Now, that's, that really sums up the second letter, beware. Lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. I want everybody to say with me, I can fall. I can fall. Be, take heed, lest any man thinks he stands, lest he fall, Paul wrote in another place. Peter is writing to sold-out believers, and he's saying, be careful, lest you fall from your own steadfastness. How? Being led away by error. Not persecution, which they were experiencing, but error. Error is more dangerous than persecution. Error. False teaching, false doctrine. When Jesus is misrepresented, when Christianity is misrepresented, when scriptures are twisted, when the word is wrongly taught, when you get your Christology all wrong, what you believe about Christ is wrong. You listen to teachers who have it all wrong. Uh, Listen, the church, the Western church today is filled with false teachers. They're everywhere. Okay? And and if you don't know that, let me inform you tonight, they are. They're on TV, they're on the radio, I'm not one of them. (laughs) You know, as much as lies within me, as much as lies within me, but they're everywhere. Books that that Christian publishers publish that you wonder why in the world they publish this. This, They've got it all wrong. This is not Christian teaching. It's everywhere. I could name names and go into things, but it it doesn't matter. Just suffice it to say, notice with me that that error and false teaching must be a major problem because five of the letters in the New Testament were written to counter false teaching. So the purpose of 2 Peter is to warn against the increasing number of false teachers attacking the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the church needs this epistle now more than ever. Now Peter begins verse 1 with his own signature. Let's start chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the name Simon is generally associated with Peter's fall. You'll remember that Jesus looked right at him and said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And Peter went on to deny the Lord on that fateful night upon Jesus' arrest. But on the other hand, the name Peter is associated with the apostle Peter. Jesus looked at him another time and said, I'm going to make you like a rock. I'm I'm calling you Peter. I'm going to make you like a rock. That means a stone, a rock. So when we hear the name Peter, we think of the spiritual rock that he became, the one on the front rank of the apostles. And it is this Simon Peter who writes his second and last letter to the church. And in this letter, he tells his readers, I'm about to go. I'm about to put aside this earthly tent. It's time for me to go home. And he knew it. So we could say that 2 Peter is Peter's swan song. Generally, when you know you don't have long, you're not going to talk about the weather. Those that love you and are near to you, you're going to tell them the things most on your heart, most important to you. So since we know that Peter knew this was it and he was soon to go home, You know that he's sharing the things 
most concerning to his heart and mind for the church. These are, he's talking out of his inner being. Of course, he's being led by the Holy Ghost and moved by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote. But, but it's coming from, here's what is most important to me. It's like Paul wrote his second Timothy. That was his swan song. So here we go. Peter next addressed himself to his readers, describing them in three ways. And first, he, he talks to their beliefs. They were those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice he calls it like precious faith. Here's what he means by that. He means faith of equal value. He's saying that the faith of the lowliest Christian in the church is on the same level as the faith of the greatest saint. If you've got faith in Jesus, it is like equal, like precious faith. Amen? God doesn't see income. God doesn't see color. God doesn't see social status. God doesn't see education. God sees human beings he loves. And when he puts faith in us to believe in Christ, it's equal faith, like equal faith. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. Amen? We all are. We are saved by faith. I want you to say with me, I'm saved by faith. As I said Sunday, never by works. There's not a work we can add to our salvation. By grace, you are saved through the medium, by the medium of faith, which is the operating principle of the Christian life. The moment that we make Christ the object of our faith, we are saved, and it becomes like precious faith. Amen? Now then Peter speaks a blessing on them. And I love these little blessings where Paul was big on this. Uh, faith, hope, and love. That was Paul's favorite trilogy, his favorite um, threesome. But now here, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our G- of Jesus our Lord. Now grace is God's provision for every one of our needs while we live on earth in enemy territory. How many of you are aware that we're in enemy territory? Amen? As soon as I'm finished with this series on these, these last three parables I've been preaching on Sunday, I'm going to begin a new series about not specifically or only about warfare, but I'm going to call it survival gear. And we're going to talk about surviving in this enemy territory in which we find ourselves. How do you survive and thrive? That's going to be a, a series on Sundays, survival gear, your spiritual survival gear. But now, grace is God's provision for us. And peace, he says grace and peace. Peace is his provision for our inner need. Peace means, you know what it really means? We have the peace of God because we made peace with God. Until you make peace with God, you'll never have the peace of God. Most folks don't understand that until you're saved, we are at war with God. We're in rebellion against him. We're in full revolt against him. That culture out there is in full, total, rebellious revolt against God. And so when you come to him and say, Lord, I agree with you that I'm in sin. I've sinned against you. And I believe that you gave Jesus Christ to die for me. And he rose from the dead on my behalf. And so, Lord, I place my faith in him as Lord and Savior. And when you do that, then, then, then listen, Jesus takes your hand and he takes God's hand and he joins them again. 
and we make peace with God. And the minute we make peace with God through the blood of Christ, we experience the peace of God. And you know what? If I've got the peace of God, I can go through anything. I can go through anything if I've got the peace of God. Amen? And notice how these two blessings are multiplied the more we come to know him. He said, grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So now the word that Peter uses here for knowledge means precise further knowledge, or we could call it growing knowledge. Just like we come to know a person on earth more and more as time goes by, you know, you marry somebody and next day you wake up and say, what did I do? And, and, and from that moment on, you begin to get to know them better and better and better. And you know them 10 years down the road better than you knew them on that first, that first week or that first year. And it's that way with God. Listen, the Bible sees spiritual health as that person is always growing in grace and in knowledge. Progressive knowledge. What you, you know more about the Lord today than he knew this same time last year. He wants us to know the width, the breadth, the height, the depth of the riches of Christ. We are never to stagnate. And we're going to find a common theme in 2 Peter. He's going to to say over and over again, always grow in grace and always grow in knowledge. And as you grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord and Savior... He says something happens. He says, he says grace and peace are multiplied to you. So there is a connection in Peter's writing between knowledge of God that is ever-growing and experience all that God has for us. We're to grow in the knowledge of God. As we progressively learn more and more about him, which we're doing here tonight, for instance, then grace and peace are multiplied to us. Now, next, Peter informs us that God has gifted us. Look at verse 3. As his divine power has given to us. Everybody say it's given. If it's given, you can't buy it. All things, here's what he's given, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge, there's that connection again. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now, notice with me that here again he's connecting. As you grow in your knowledge of him, then you will realize what he has given you. You know, I think one of the real shocks when we all get to heaven is when we realize all that he gave us that we never took the time to find out. Now, if you're a parent in here, you've probably done what I've done in the past many times. Christmas rolls around. And you go to the store, you go, you know, Toys R Us or whatever, and you, you, you buy this toy in a box. Let's say it's a little, I remember this distinctly. I bought a little plastic tricycle for my son when he was a little guy. And, and I looked at it and I said, oh, no big deal. I'll put this together easy. <laughs> so I opened up the box. I got home and opened up the box. And, and I just threw the directions aside. And I, and I just lit into that thing. I said, I don't need directions. And I, and I began to put all these different parts together. And then I got about halfway through it and realized it didn't work. It wasn't going to work at all. And, and then I grabbed the directions and looked at the directions and realized I had made many mistakes. Now, I've got a little saying, when all else fails, follow directions. Because that night I almost lost my Christianity on Christmas Eve. I had to take everything I had done back apart. And put it together right. 
And it's going to be that one when we get to heaven. He gave us an instruction manual called the Bible. And how is it that we try everything? And when all else fails, we say, well, I guess I'm going to have to pray. (laughs) Or maybe I ought to look in the Word of God. And what Peter is telling us here is through the knowledge of Him. Everybody say the knowledge of Him. The more we come to understand and know our Lord Jesus, the more we grow, the more we grasp, the more we understand what He has given to us. He connects knowledge to spiritual growth, specifically the knowledge of him. And the more we come to know our Lord, the more we'll experience, he says, glory and virtue. We will experience his glory and his virtue. Now, his glory means the outpouring of his presence. I like to think that tonight when we were worshiping, his presence was here, and that's that's a little tiny, teeny taste of the glory. The Bible says he's given the Holy Spirit as an earnestness, as a sort of a down payment, a little taste of what's coming. But folks, when the day comes and we see him and death is swallowed up in life and we see him as he is, anything we have experienced, our greatest glory moment here on this earth is going to pale. It's going to be way back there compared with what we're going to experience when we go to heaven and we experience full glory with no devil, no flesh, no distractions, no sickness, just glory, the glory of God. But he says the more we come to know him, the more we experience his glory. And his virtue. His virtue is his moral goodness. I'm going to talk about that more in just a moment. Now catch this. When we were saved, the absolute goodness of the Lord was transferred to us positionally. So that when God looks at you and me, he sees perfection. Because you know how he sees us? Through the blood. I like to put it this way. He puts on sun glasses. S-O-N. And they're tinted red. So when he looks at us, he doesn't see our imperfections. He doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our flaws. He sees us righteous. The righteousness of Christ is ours. He looks at us through the blood. That's our positional, that's how we are positionally before God. But now the indwelling Holy Spirit labors to produce that goodness in us practically, and that's what spiritual growth is all about. God sees us perfect. But practically, each and every day, we are his handiwork. And he's chiseling into us the character of Christ. Little here, little there. Sometimes you don't feel like you're growing. But if you're seeking him and if you're in the Bible and if you're coming to church and you're worshiping him and walking with him the best you can, you may not see it. But every day you're growing, you're becoming a little bit more like him than you were this time last year. Because the Holy Ghost, that's what he's all about. That's why he's given to us to shape us and form us and mold us and make us into the image of Christ. Amen? Everybody say glory. Glory. Virtue. Now, Peter next informs us that God has given incredible promises of this very thing coming to pass. Verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now, the promises of God are great. And they are precious. And they are backed up by the very integrity of God himself. 
Did you know there's a promise for every conceivable need? There's not one thing that you're experiencing tonight that is a need that it doesn't have a promise somewhere in the Bible for that need to be met. Let me, just, let me just give you some truth about the promises. The promises of God are like blank checks, drawn on the bank of heaven, signed by the Lord of glory, and given to us so that we can fill in our name, our need, and the now of our present emergency. The promises are a blank check. Amen. A couple of things happened today that, that kind of took away. How many of you know that, that the devil likes to steal your peace? And there's all kinds of peace thieves out there, peace stealers, peace robbers. And I don't like when the devil tries to take my peace away. And a couple of things kind of came my way that, that, that attacked my peace. And, and, I, and I realized I was thinking about it and mulling over it and, and, and giving it way too much meditation time. And finally, I just thought, why aren't you praying about this, Jeff? And so I said, I'm going to pray about this. And so I prayed. And I just took it to God. And I cast all my cares upon him. I just, you know, I used to fish. And I always reeled it back in. That's the way some of us pray. We cast our cares, and then we go, we reel it back in. And one hour later, we're messing with it again. But no. The way we're supposed to do it is you cast it and you cut the line. And you leave it in his hands. And so I said, Lord, I'm giving you these things. And it's just amazing what prayer can do. Because as soon as I did that, this peace swept over me. This wonderful peace that passes understanding. And God seemed to say to me, it's okay. I got it. All right. And I drove to church tonight singing worship songs to the Lord because the peace was there. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. You can worry about it if you want to, but if you want to get rid of it, give it to God. How did I get on that? Oh, a promise. So the promise is, if we cast our cares upon him, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. That's a promise, and it's a blank check to me, and today I filled it in, put my name on it. And I received it, and I walked in it. Amen. And Peter says, it is through these promises, verse 4, second half, that you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, I'm going to read that again because that is so powerful. Through the promises, we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. By laying hold, folks, of the promises of God, we become more and more like God whose divine nature has been birthed in us by being born again. How many of you want to be more like Jesus? All right, when you, when you got saved, God birthed in you a new nature. And that new nature, Peter calls the divine nature. It's the nature of God. And that divine nature that was birthed in you is perfect. It's perfect. And, and so we are to grow 
We are, we are to partake of that divine nature, draw from the reality of that divine nature, walk in the reality of what God has done for us. For instance, the Bible says that Jesus not only died for us, but he also died as us. Now think with me for a moment of the song. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? That's the beginning of a hymn. Let's answer the question. Yes, we were there. I want you to say with me, I was there. You say, how was I there? God put you there. You were in Christ. And so he not only died, but he died as us. Put it another way, we died with him. Going even further, our old nature died with him. You were there. And you know what? My sin and your sin played a part in putting him there. And so we were there with him. So as the song asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, we were there. Our sin put him there, but we were also in him. He died as us. Our old nature was crucified with him. And anything crucified dies. In Jesus, we already have died to our old life and our old sinful nature. And we are to reckon it so. We are to account that as truth. So I want us to say together, I died with him. My old man died with him. My old nature. It's dead. He crucified it. Now watch this. Here's Bible truth. We died with him on the cross. We were buried with him in the waters of baptism. And we have been raised with him to walk in newness of life. So our old man is dead and our new man, we have been raised by his resurrection power to walk in newness of life. Now he said, reckon that so. So everybody say with me a good Texan statement? I reckon. Is your old man dead with him? I reckon. Were you buried with him? I reckon. Were you raised with him? I reckon. Y'all sound really Western. That's going to sound great on the radio. Now that's Bible truth. So our new nature given to us at our new birth is the divine nature. It is the nature of Christ himself. This is one of the exceeding great and precious promises of the Bible. Now let me give you another one. In light of what he's done for us, here's, here's, here's a promise to, to grab as a blank check and put your name on it. Sin shall no longer have dominion over me. In light of what he's done, since the old man is dead, then sin shall no longer rule your life. Because now you're being ruled by the Holy Ghost of God living inside of you, which Paul calls the law of life in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let's just try that. Sin shall no longer have dominion over me. Now, isn't that a great check to take and put your name on it and say, I receive that. I reckon it to be true. So when the devil comes knocking on my door, I send Jesus to the door. Now, he goes, he goes on. He says, you have escaped. You, you have experienced a great escape. 
He says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we have experienced, when we got saved, we experienced a great escape. The word for escape means to flee away. Peter says, you have experienced an incredible escape. And the best way to have victory over temptation, just for the record, is to put as much distance as possible between yourself and the source of temptation. 90% of winning the battle with temptation is avoid the scene of temptation. If you know something's going to tempt you, don't get within a mile of it. And God will strengthen you to stay away. Now, look what he said. We experienced a great escape from the corruption that is in the world. You know what that word corruption means in the original language? It's used to describe a corpse. It carries the idea of destruction by corruption. Peter says, this is the consequence for a society or a person that abandons itself to lust. Now, let me tell you the truth about you and me as human beings. We're either going to abandon ourselves to God and walk in the Spirit, or we will abandon ourselves to the lust of the flesh and be driven by them and experience destruction by corruption. There's no other option. The, the way we escaped is God gave us an exit door. The exit door said, whosoever will, let him come. And we walked through that exit door. We accepted Christ and walked through that exit door. And when we walked through that door, he, he placed his spirit inside of us. And that spirit is the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. And as we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Lusts. That's why I tell you, you've got to get in the Bible every day. Amen. I'm a broken record on that one. You've got to get in it every day. You've got to get with God every day. You've got to strengthen your inner man every day. Amen. And if you pay attention to your inner man, strengthen him first thing in the morning, then you can go out and face the devil during the day. But if you neglect that inner man and you don't ever get with God, never in the word, it's only a matter of time before you succumb to some lust, some temptation, and... You begin to experience destruction by corruption if you don't come out. Now, the Bible is crystal clear that destruction by corruption is the condition of our fallen world. Let me ask you, is America experiencing destruction by corruption right now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because has America turned itself over to various and sundry lusts? Yes. And if you say anything about their lusts, they'll kill you. But listen to what John said. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. The whole world is experiencing destruction by corruption. There's only one great escape, and the great escape is Jesus Christ. So having begun in faith, Peter sees the rest of our Christian life as a matter of addition. He says, add. Now, it's about to get really rich here. He says, add to your faith seven times. He says it seven times in the following verses. Now, what he's going to do, he's going to set before us a sevenfold progression in our spiritual growth. He's going to show us how to grow, where we're to add one character quality alongside the next, like building a house of seven building blocks. And it begins with virtue. And you know what? I counted. He refers to these things, these seven building blocks. I think it goes all the way through verse 15 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Through the first 15 verses, he says these things. He points back to these things five times. And when he says 
these things. He's talking about these seven building blocks. These things. I want to remind you of these things. I want to turn your memory to these things. I want to put before you these things. I want to, I want to say these things again. These things five times in 15 verses. So they must be important. So he says, the first building block is virtue. Verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Now quickly, all diligence means you need to make this a, an upper, a front burner task. This needs to be something you are really focused on. All diligence. He's not saying when you find time, do this. He's saying make time and do this. All right? Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. Now, virtue, which we just saw Jesus described as having, he called us by glory and virtue, means moral excellence. It's the idea of genuine goodness. It says of Jesus that he went about everywhere doing good. You know why he did good? Because he was good. Jesus was good through and through. Now, let me ask you another question. Am I alone in feeling like just good people are a fading species? Good people. Just inherently just good. Godly, just good. Good people. You know? Now, what are we seeing in our culture now? We're seeing evil people. Wicked people. Cruel people. I mean, you know what? Soulless Now, I don't think anybody ever sins enough that their soul departs from their body. That only happens when you die. But I do believe you can sin to the point and get hardened in your heart to the point where you are essentially soulless, meaning what God hardwired into into our souls, goodness, kindness, love, gentleness, thoughtfulness, Natural caring, natural affection can be so gutted from an individual through sin that their soul, as you look at their eyes and there's nothing there. So when I meet somebody inherently good, I feel like I have found a treasure. I think you folks are good. I think, I think you're good. But I guarantee you there's places I'm going to plead the blood before I go walk there. Because there's no good. Listen, if you're out there and you don't have God and you don't have the word and you don't know Jesus and and you're in this wicked culture, I'm telling you, it's dumbing people down to where there's no goodness in them. But Jesus was good. And the best way to develop this kind of goodness, this virtue, is to train yourself to think right. As Paul wrote, fix your thoughts. On what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. That's how you get good. It's what you think on. It's what you think on. Now, then he has us a second building block. Knowledge. To virtue, to your goodness, add knowledge. And here comes that word knowledge again. Peter liked knowledge. Now, the word for knowledge means knowledge acquired by learning, effort, and experience. In other words, it's intentional knowledge. You are intentionally learning. You're here on a Wednesday night when you could be doing other things. You know what you're doing? You're intentionally learning. And I love you for it. God bless you for it. 
We should never stop learning in our understanding of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the infinite depths of truth found in the Bible, Lord. If God left us here a million years with only the book of Genesis, we would never get to the bottom of it. God places no premium on ignorance. Amen? And then in verse 6, we're handed three more building blocks. And the first one is self-control. He says, to your knowledge, continually learning about God, learning about Jesus, to your knowledge, add self-control. Now, let me give you an example. Solomon stands alone in the Old Testament as the greatest example of somebody who had incredible knowledge. There was no field of learning where Solomon was not an expert. If they had done an IQ test on Solomon, he would have broken the scale. He had incredible, incredible intelligence, but he had no self-control. He could not stay away from the wrong kind of women. His many godless wives, the Bible tells us, turned his heart away from the Lord. So here's this incredible knowledge, but he had no self-control. So can you see why Peter would say, now that you've got knowledge, practice self-control so that you can enjoy the knowledge. So you don't sabotage the knowledge. Patience is the next one. To self-control, add patience. Patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit we wish were a gift instead. How I wish God could just gift me with patience. Here it is, Jeff. And I've got it. I'm patient. Do whatever you want around me. I'm cool. I'm not going to lose my cool. I'm patient. I can wait forever. The hardest thing about patience is having to wait. I wish it were a gift, but it's not. The only way we can learn patience is by practicing it. And so God is very faithful to put us in situations where we're going to have to develop patience or go crazy. How many of you have got, don't look at your spouse now, have got somebody in your life you know God gifted you with to teach you patience? That one person comes walking into your life, and some, for some reason or another, you can't get rid of them. Or it's a job, or it's a car that keeps breaking. It's something. And you rebuke the devil and bind it and loose it and fast and pray, but it still stays. Why is God leaving that there? Because the only way that we're going to be patient is learning to be patient. Patience describes somebody who can wait in difficult circumstances with a good attitude. They don't go off easily on others. There's some people I don't want to get around. I'm scared of them. The least little thing, they pop off at you. Patient people can put up with irritating things without losing their religion. They have learned to trust God's timing. Listen, the patient person has learned to trust God's timing and sovereignty over all their circumstances. The only reason we get impatient, when we get impatient, what we're really doing is this. We're saying, God, I'm really getting impatient with you. I prayed yesterday and today it's still not here. And you know what? It takes God. Let me tell you the truth. It takes God 20 years to make a man. It takes God 20 years to make a woman of God. It takes time. It takes trouble. It takes trials. It takes fire. It takes testing. It takes God turning the thermometer up where you don't think you can take one more degree and then he turns it down. 
It takes you learning to trust him no matter what. Add to, add to your self-control patience. Peter says to your faith add virtue. To virtue add knowledge. To knowledge add self-control. And to self-control add patience. Now here comes the fifth building block. To your patience add godliness. Now godliness literally means to be devout. With the idea of doing those things that are pleasing to God. The godly person lives with a vertical uplook. Not a horizontal outlook. The vertical uplook. Everything I do. I talked about this some Sunday. Uh, When we got saved, didn't we? We got an uplook. Um, we're always aware of God's eye on us, aren't we? The, the lost person isn't. The lost person has no clue that God is watching them. But the saved person is always aware that God is watching and weighing every one of our thoughts and words and actions. He's watching and weighing them. And so when we get that new nature, that divine nature put in us, with that divine nature comes a desire to please the Lord. So we got that uplook. And so, you know, it's like when you got your little kids, they're growing up, and they go to reach into the cookie jar, and they look your way to see if you're looking. And if you're looking, they care. They want to know if dad's looking because they've got that, that parental, parental outlook. But see, when we get saved, we get an uplook. We're aware of, of uh, we want our lives to please God. This is why Paul advised the church in Ephesians 5.10, learn as you go along what pleases the Lord. Amen? Amen? Learn what pleases the Lord. So that's godliness. You got that uplook. Then here comes the sixth building block to godliness, brotherly kindness. We should be kind to one another, says Peter. Being godly does not mean, like some people, it's amazing they don't drown in a rainstorm because their nose is up like this. They're so much better than everybody else. They're looking down on you. But here's the deal. Being godly doesn't mean you're to be distant, untouchable, holier than thou. I've been around people, it's crazy. They think so highly of their walk. You know, they got to pray before they'll see you. They got to pray before they'll talk to you. And, and you get around them and, and they make you feel like you got to be real careful of what you say and do. They're, they're untouchable. They're unapproachable. But you know who wasn't that way? Jesus. Jesus was totally approachable. When I was starting out in the pastorate, um, I, I was serious. I, I was a serious studier, and I was, I was real serious about the things of God, and I was really, you know, just always seeking God and pressing into God. And when I got my first church, I thought I was doing great. It was in East Texas, and it was, they were a bunch of precious country people, and I was a city boy. And, and so... I, didn't, I wasn't aware of the first two or three years of the effect I was having on them. But they loved to hear me preach, but they didn't know what to say to me when I came off the stage because I was godly. Okay? Now, I didn't know I was giving that impression, but that's the impression I was giving. And so one night, me and Kathy went to a pizza hut. And we sat down to order pizza, and, you know, you go to the salad bar before you get your pizza. And so I went to the salad bar, and I'm getting a bunch of salad, and I'm, I'm loading it up. And all of a sudden, I'm aware of a little kid standing here looking up at me. And I recognized him from church. And I said, hey. He went, you eat? (laughs) 
I went back to my table and I said, Kathy, we got a problem. I said, yes, son, every once in a while I do eat. So, so that's the way they were seeing me. So I had to figure out ways to build a bridge, and I did. <laughs> Amen. Amen. People approach Jesus all the time with questions and requests, so just to be in his presence. So we believers are to be kind, forgiving, and approachable to others and to one another. We're to be kind, not mean, not cruel, not snappy, kind. And it starts at home. Shh, home. If you can do it at home, you can do it in church. Be kind at home. That's free. The final building block to brotherly kindness, add love. The word is agape, agape, the God kind of love. Love can be known only by what it does. You can say, I love you all day long, but what it does is what tells the truth. We Christians are to shun selfishness and do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Amen? Amen. Now, as I close, I want you to look at the amazing promise attached to Peter's seven building blocks. Verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, there's his phrase, these things. These things, those seven building blocks. If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a couple of verses later, he says, and you will never stumble. If you do those seven things with all diligence, build them into your life, you'll never stumble. The seven building blocks Peter gave us are exactly what he personally observed operating in the life of Jesus, and they are the same things that were operating in his life. To walk in them is to walk where he walked and to know him better and better. Amen. Peter ends with a mention of somebody stuck in spiritual babyhood. Verse 9. He who lacks these things, who's not doing these seven things, they're not adding these things diligently to their life is short-sighted, and that means blind, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. He's forgotten that he was born again way back there. His salvation is a distant memory. He's no longer growing. I, I, wish, I, I wish what I'm about to say weren't true. But folks, I've been in church a long time, and I'm not saying this church but I, I've seen the underbelly of the church. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've been around Christians my whole life. I'm going to tell you, way too many people get saved and never grow. They stay in spiritual diapers. They do not add all, with all diligence, add these things. They don't work at spiritual growth. They just plateau. And they become plain vanilla. They don't affect anybody for Jesus and they themselves never come to, they, they still got their bad temper. They still got their bad habits. They still, they, they believe in Jesus. That their souls were saved. But see, we have a part to play. We've got to respond to the grace of God. And in and, and responding to the grace of God, you add these things to your life. So Peter reminds us, even at the very end of the book, last verse, he says, grow in grace. This is the last chapter Almost the last verse. Here he is again. Grow in grace and grow in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Isn't that good stuff?
All right, I do have time for a couple of questions. How many of you appreciated the Word of God tonight? Isn't that good stuff? Amen. How many of you are going to, with all diligence, add those seven building blocks to your life? Now, I want to grow. I want to look like Him, walk like Him, talk like Him, think like Him. Amen? All right. Lord, help me. I'm about to take questions. Amen. Anybody have a question for me? Okay. And this, anything, any Bible question or about what I just covered tonight, that's fine. But I want to take a couple of questions and I like interacting with the folks this way. Okay. Um, piggybacking to what you were saying on this last verse or the second to the last verse, mm-hmm. what happens to that person that refuses to grow in, in what, after they've been saved, what happens to that person if, if they're stubborn and, and they don't change in their ways? Mm-hmm. I guess I'm answering my own question. They're missing out on all the blessings that God has in store yeah. for them. Here's 1 Corinthians 3 speaks to it. Because the sinners, those that never turn to Christ, are going to go before the great white throne judgment. Judgment day that we always mention, the judgment day. They're going to go to the great white throne judgment where a book is opened. And it's called the book of life. And... The book is scanned for your name because your name is literally put in heaven's book of life. And when your name is not found, then you must answer for your sins with no attorney. And the only attorney is Christ. And so you've got to answer for all the sins of your whole life. And there is no, uh, there is no vindication. And you're cast into everlasting flames. I'm quoting scripture. Christians don't go to that judgment. Our name is in the book of life. We go to the judgment seat of Christ that 1 Corinthians 3 talks about. And in the judgment seat of Christ, our works are tried. And Paul says they will either be of gold, silver, or precious stones, I mean good works, or wood, hand, stubble, fleshly, useless works. And it says they will be subjected to fire. I take that to be the fire of of God's judgment. We will not answer for our sins. They're covered. But at the judgment seat of Christ is where we receive rewards. Now, the person who never grows, who, who comes to Christ, but, you know, they don't pay any attention to it. They're in and out of church. So many people aren't in church that ought to be in church. They don't go to church. They don't really seek the Lord. They kind of go their own way. Um, They're out there, they're worldly, you can't tell them apart. Now they came to him and they really did believe on him, but they never grow. I believe they lose all the rewards they could have had. He says, if your works are burned up, the wood, the hay, and the stubble, he or she will be saved, yet so as by fire. Let me paraphrase it, they get in by the skin of their chinny-chin-chin. But there's no reward. So let me drop this your way. I believe, oh, I've got to be careful here. There's no lower class, middle class, upper class in heaven. But there are varying degrees of reward. I've counted in the Bible eight crowns people will be given. Crown of righteousness, the soul winner's crown, the pastor's crown. Eight crowns, I counted. And those are rewards. And then the Bible says in Revelation that when we see Jesus we'll take off those crowns and throw them at his feet and just worship him. But does that answer you? All right. Over here. 
Um, this is kind of a two-part question. Okay. Why did Jesus say, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended? And also, um, Jesus was the first resurrected, but why are our bodies resurrected from the grave, brought up at the rapture, when we're, if we're already there? To be absent from this world, body is to be present with the Lord. So why do we even, okay. what's the purpose? Okay, I think I understand the second question. The first one, when he said she was grabbing him, grabbing his ankles, the Bible, it was Mary grabbing his ankles. He said, don't touch me, I haven't yet ascended. I think there was something about the way she was, it wasn't inordinate, but there was something about the frantic way in which she was grabbing him where for some reason Jesus felt compelled to say, don't touch me that way. Now he said to Thomas, put your hand on my side and, and, and in my hands, see there's the, the nail scars. Now why he let Thomas and not her, I, I don't know. It, it had, I'm sure it had something to do with the moment and something Christ discerned where he just said, don't grab my ankles like that. Um, other than that, I don't know. I've never read anything on it. The resurrection of the body, he's the first fruits of resurrection. He's the first one to be resurrected um, from the dead, uh, and we are to go with him. Now, the reason our bodies are resurrected, because that's part of, part of the very core of the promise of Christianity, is a resurrected body. Uh, we don't think about that very often, but part of the, the contract or the covenant God cut with us is our bodies are, are fallen. They are affected drastically by sin. You know, you look at the pre-Noah lifespans. Uh, they lived 800, 900. Methuselah made it to 969. Noah, I think, was 939, something like that. They lived, they lived for a millennium almost. But sin took its toll. And the lifespan began to go down. And so, part of the covenant that God made with fallen man is, through my son, I'm not only going to redeem your fallen spirit that has died in sin, but I'm going to give you a resurrected body. And I believe the resurrected body is, is going to be very equal to what Adam had before the fall. I believe Adam glowed in the dark. Adam had the Shekinah glory of God on him. His, his form, if we could see him and Eve before the fall, I think we would just be speechless for weeks. They, they, they had these glorious bodies created, fashioned by the very hand of God himself. So part of God's contract was to totally redeem everything the fall did to us. The fall caused us to have dead spirits, and it caused us to have disease-infested problematic, weakened bodies, and all of that is going to be restored back to us. And that's why we're resurrected. The minute we're resurrected, we get a glorified body. Amen? Amen. And, all right, over here? Over here. Hi. Um, are we going to be held accountable if we do not um, celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle? Oh, no. That's Old Testament. No. No, that, you got to be careful. I love Old Testament teaching, and I love learning what the different feasts meant and all that, but you got to be careful because Paul came along in Colossians and a couple of other places and said, look, 
Um, we're under a new covenant now. Now, the Old Testament is still valid. You've got to be careful there, too. It's still valid. The commandments are valid. But we're not under that old covenant system. So we have been called now to worship him, put him first. Jesus is. Jesus represents all the covenants wrapped up in one. He is our covenant. So, no, it's good to know what they meant, good to know what they symbolized, and how they prefigured New Testament truths. But we're not bound to walk in any of those. Anyone else? Yes, over here. So to we've lost it. Okay, so to piggyback kind of on that, um, with us celebrating on the first day of the week on Sunday instead of Saturday, like the Seventh Day Adventist, yeah. and we have it. Can you kind of speak to that? Why is that? Does that have something to do with Old Testament, New Testament, resurrection? Why is that? No, actually, um, and Saturday was the first day of the week in in the Old Covenant, but. Now, I could have church on Tuesday, I can have church on Thursday, I can have church on Friday. We do it on Sunday because it's a tradition that goes back centuries in in the West, and I guess other parts of the world as well. But there's nothing um, sacred about Sunday. Here's what I believe you, you do need to be careful of. You do need a day of rest. You should give your body, your mind, a day of rest. I take Mondays, and I do my best to totally avoid church. Doesn't that sound spiritual? I don't want to talk about church stuff. I don't want to get in, because I have to decompress after Sunday. So I give myself a day of rest. Now, to me, that's the important thing. God did not hardwire you to go seven days a week without ever resting. So if your day of rest is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, now we meet on Sundays. I think you ought to obey the scriptures that say, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. doesn't say what day. It just says the assembling together. So if you assemble together like tonight, Wednesday, uh, we're, then on Sundays we meet, don't forsake it. But it's not because of the day it's on. It's because of we're meeting and we need one another. We're not to fellowship with a screen. You can't. We need to fellowship with one another. So... I don't think any day, I really don't, is particularly sacred. Just when you come together to worship, that's the sacred moment. That's when God visits. But taking a day of rest, I believe everybody, there's an old saying, the bow always, bre- the bow always bent will break. If you're always bent, always working, never letting that bow relax, You're going to wake up one day and you're going to be a crispy critter, burned out, fried, no desire to do anything. You need a day of rest. Does that help? All right. Seventh-day Adventists, I know they're big on Saturday. I don't agree with it. Okay? All right. One more. Here we go. I was talking with this Catholic, and he said uh, that the... the seven books of, like, Martin Luther took out seven books of the Bible, so I was just wondering. What, wait a minute, say that again now? Martin Luther took seven books out of the Bible. Martin Luther took out seven books. Yeah, the book of Maccabees and the book okay, of Okay, part of the Apocrypha. Yeah. Right. So I was wondering, should it be in there or should it not be in there? Okay, the, the Apocrypha is our extra-biblical writings. And like you said, Maccabees and uh, I forget how many. Is there seven total? I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's been a little bit. But... 
the Apocrypha has never been considered inspired writing. Uh, the church fathers never accepted the Apocrypha as inspired. Uh, Book of Enoch is in there. there. A lot of people make a big deal out of the Book of Enoch. I've had emails sent to me, why won't you preach out of Enoch? Can you imagine me saying, I want everybody to turn to Enoch? I'd get some stares, wouldn't I? The Book of Enoch is in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha has never, and, and believe me, if you look at Enoch and you look at the book of Maccabees, now what Maccabees is good for is history. Maccabees is, is very accurate history. But as far as it being inspired by the Holy Ghost writings on the level of the epistles and the rest of the Holy Bible, it's not. It never has been considered so. That's why Martin Luther took it out. It's never been embraced. That The Catholic Church has in their Bible what we have, and then they have added the Apocrypha. But if you read the Apocrypha very closely, it's very easy to see. It's full of errors. It's full of mistakes. It's not inspired. It's never been considered inspired, okay? Um, well, there's no mic, and where he's way... <laughs> uh, one more, real quickly. Okay. I'm real loud. One of the things that I heard about that is those books are in none of the other Gospels or none of the other Bibles to um, make that some kind of, um, I'm not sure how to say it, but in other words, those five books, how many books is Seven. It? Seven yeah. are in none of the other transcripts yeah. of the bible yeah no they're not and the yeah other so you didn't have a question no well, okay but what i did want to say okay. is the knowledge of god is in the bible yeah and the church has to really step up and read the bible to get the knowledge right of god. let's stand together i totally agree with you that's my mantra amen amen all right everybody happy tonight Let's thank Jesus. Lord, we just thank you tonight for your blessing, your presence. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have purchased for us. Now help us to add with all diligence these seven building blocks. Help us to meditate on the word, soak in the word. And Lord, thank you for helping us to grow into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. I pray your blessing on every person here. Lord, I send them out with a blessing that they would be the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. Blessed in the storehouse, blessed in the field, blessed as they go out and blessed as they come in. And thank you for filling every home with the Holy Ghost and with the peace of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.